All right, if you take your Bibles and turn to Genesis chapter 8, Genesis, the 8th chapter, we'll look tonight at what took place after it stopped raining. Someone, I don't know if they wrote a book or they just came up with the article or something that uh, says, everything I need to know I learned from Noah's Ark. And here are some of the lessons uh, this person said they learned from the account of Noah and the great flood. Lesson number one, don't miss the boat. Uh, Number two, remember that we're all in the same boat. And then thirdly, plan ahead. It wasn't raining when Noah built the ark. Uh, Number four, stay fit. When you're 600 years old, someone may ask you to do something really big. Uh, Number five, don't listen to critics. Just get on with the job that needs to be done. Number six, build your future on high ground. Number seven, for safety's sake, travel in pairs. Number eight, speed isn't always an advantage. The snails were on board with the cheetahs. And when you're stressed... Float a while. Number 10, remember the ark was built by amateurs. The Titanic was built by professionals. And number 11, no matter the storm, when you are with God, there is always a rainbow waiting. Well, those are some good lessons I think we could learn from Noah and uh, his ark. Now, in our last study in Genesis, we looked at the day it started to rain and the great flood. And these chapters here in Genesis detail God's destroying of the earth by means of a worldwide flood. I think here's some interesting observations concerning the flood. First of all, the geological record overwhelmingly testifies to this truth. There was a worldwide flood, and in addition to this, more than 230 cultures and civilizations have a worldwide flood story as a part of their heritage and background. Uh, Another observation is this. The godly character of Noah is something that we are to pattern ourselves after. And then another observation. The loving obedience of Noah to God's commands ought to characterize us. And one of the things that really defines Noah in our text is how active and energized he was in response to the commands of God. His obedience was not of the foot-dragging variety. You know, sometimes we get a command from God and we say, oh, do I have to? Does He really want me to do this? I think another observation would be blessings come to those who find favor with God. By the way, I like the promise that you find in Proverbs chapter 28, verse 20. A faithful man shall abound with blessings, but he that maketh haste to be rich shall not be innocent. And one other uh, observation would be this. The wickedness of mankind was the reason for God's destroying the world by the flood. And the details of our text emphasize that we're considering a real literal event. This isn't just a story that someone made up for the children. 
just a fable. But there are many topic, uh, topological uh, features to our text. For example, the flood, which points to the judgment to come. Uh, there's the ark, uh, which was a vehicle of their physical salvation, and it points to Jesus and how that in Him can, the, uh, we can be spiritually saved and delivered from the judgment to come. You know, one question on many people's minds is this, how did all those animals fit into that ark? You know, to some minds, the ark was small. It seemed small. You know, uh, you go to the Mall of America, and that's huge. And yet, until the 1800s, the ark was the largest boat or vessel of any kind that was built. The ark had 1.4 million cubic feet of space and 100,000 feet of floor space. And if you picture in your mind uh, uh, maybe a railroad boxcar, just imagine 522 of them fitting into the ark. Now that's a lot of boxcars. I've sat at railroad crossings and counted uh, cars going by, especially in Napanee, Indiana, when there's a train that comes by every 15 minutes, and you think, uh-oh, another one of those coal trains. There are always 100 cars at least. Think about if it was a train 522 cars long. Now, it's reasonably thought that out of the 522 rail cars that would fit into the ark, only about 146 or 28% would be needed to hold the animals. And that 70% of the ark then was free to store the food and whatever else they needed for this, uh, this time there. But the bottom line is this, there was no problem in fitting the animals into the ark. Now another question people have asked is this, where did all the water come from that was needed to flood the earth? Well, first of all, we need to realize the flood or the world pre-flood looked radically different than the post-flood world. The Bible tells us that the mountains were not, all, not as tall and the valleys were not as deep. Uh, the weight of the wa flood waters and the underground eruptions of mass amounts of water and the general overall violent battering of our world resulted in the look of our world today. Back in Genesis, Genesis chapter 7 and verse 11 and 12, it tells us that the day of destruction of the world began that all the springs of the deep burst forth and the floodgates of the heavens were opened. And the result of this was that the world was returned to what it was day two of creation, really. A big ball of water with no divisions between the land and the sea. And as you all know, in addition to our world being 70% covered with water, there are massive amounts of water under the ground in what we call aquifers. And wherever you go, you can always dig down and you can drill a well. Imagine the amount of water under the ground significantly greater than it is even today. You know, one of the things we need to take note of when the Bible speaks of the springs of the great deep bursting forth in our, is that our world in the days of Noah was shaken as it had never been shaken before. 
The destructive flooding of the earth by God was no gentle experience. Don't imagine it just being a little rainfall pitter-pattering on your window. Imagine gigantic earthquake after earthquake occurring on the land and in the sea. And imagine how huge the tsunamis, the earthquakes out at the sea, with the waves hundreds of feet high battering the coastal shores. Imagine how the foundations of our very world were shattered and broken. And in case you're wondering how did the ark survive that terrible battering, it's good to notice this. In 1956, the U.S. did all sorts of studies and determined that a vessel best suited for the most violent of sea conditions had to have a 6 to 1 length to width ratio. By the way, the ark's dimensions are 6 to 1 length to width. And such were the perfect dimensions for weathering the flood. See, our God knew what He was doing when He gave the instructions to Noah. Also notice this, the first destruction of the world on the account of man's sin points to the coming destruction of the world on the account of man's sin. And we need to uh, get, get this and be right with God just as Noah was. And again, the bottom line here is there's more than enough water to flood Noah's world to the tops of the mountain peaks. Now, this evening, we're going to zero in on Genesis chapter 8. Genesis chapter 8 is filled with all kinds of timing details. Uh, Details such as when the water started to recede and so forth. And again, these details emphasize that the Bible's account of the flood is not mythological, but real. Imagine living in the ark for a whole year as Noah and his family and all the animals. If you think your skin is a little pasty and light after spending the winter bundled up in your clothes and out of the sun, you can imagine what Noah and his family were thinking. Look at chapter 8, and let's look begin here in verse 1. I want us to notice four things concerning this chapter. Verse 1, it says, And God remembered Noah and every living thing and all the cattle that was with him in the ark. And God made a wind to pass over the earth and the waters assuaged. These words are the turning point words. Until this point, the world had been under judgment and the floodwaters prevailed. God's remembering of Noah and all those in the ark marks a new direction. A change in the sentiment of God. God was not going to be angry forever. The time of wrath and the time of judgment has now passed. Justice has been served. Now is a time of restoration. Now I want you to notice that word remembered. That word remembered in our text has nothing to do with God forgetting about Noah for a while. God didn't wasn't just busy with his uh, daily work and says, oh yeah, I just remembered Noah. No, that's not the remembered that we're talking about here. It's not as if God looked out at the world and said, oh yeah, there was a, that's that ark floating out there and says, yeah, I forgot about those guys. No, in the Bible, God's remembering of someone is a good thing. 
At least it's good for those with whom he finds favor. God's remembering of someone always involves an action on God's part that is directed toward them. For Noah, God's action is a positive one. God's action for Noah indicates His favor and His grace. What does God do? Well, He in essence recreates a habitable world for Noah, his family, and the animals. In accomplishing of this, our text tells us that God sent a wind over the earth and the waters then receded. Now, without this wind, Noah and the animals would have been in the ark indefinitely. The world would have remained a big floating ball of water. The world would have continued to look as it did the day, the, at the end of day, uh, the day of creation. Uh, there are some striking parallels between our present text and Genesis 1. If you go back to Genesis 1 for just a moment, Uh, You notice in verses 1 through 6, the first parallel is that the world in chapter 8, verse 1, looked as it did at the end of day 1. The second parallel is this, the wind. The wind. The Hebrew word for wind is ruhah. Ruhah in the Old Testament scriptures is typically translated three ways. Number one, as a breath. Number two as spirit, and number three as wind. Now in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 2, it says here, And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. Now the word spirit there is in chapter 1 and verse 2 is the same word as chapter 8 and verse 1. Ruha, where it says wind. Now, in chapter 8 and verse 1, what are we told? God sent a ruha, or a wind, over the earth, and the waters receded. Now, what is being spoken of in the, both passages is the creative activity of the Holy Spirit, alternately depicted as the Spirit of God and as the wind from God. Now, in Genesis 1 and verse 2, the Spirit is depicted as creating activity, in His creating activity. Genesis 8 and verse 1 depicts God's recreating of our world. Once again, making boundaries between the land and the seas. Now, how can we apply this? Well, the same God who remembers Noah is ever mindful of you and me and acting in our good. Sometimes we're blind to this work in our lives, and yet God will never, never, never abandon us tonight. God will never leave you. He will never forsake you. You're His child if you know Him as your Savior. You're His child. He will not abandon you. So first of all, we notice here God's remembrance. God's remembrance. Now, secondly, I want you to notice God's representatives. God's representatives. Notice in verse 6 of chapter 8. It says, And it came to pass at the end of forty days that Noah opened the window of the ark which he had made, and he sent forth a raven which went forth to and fro until the waters were dried up from off the earth. 
And he went forth, excuse me, and he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters were abated from off the face of the ground. But the dove found no rest for the sole of her foot and returned unto him into the ark. For the waters were on the face of the whole earth. And then he put forth his hand and took her and pulled her in unto him into the ark. And he stayed yet another or yet other seven days. And again, he sent forth the dove out of the ark and the dove came in to him in the evening and lo, in her mouth was an olive leaf plucked off. So Noah knew that the waters were abated from the earth, off the earth. And he stayed yet another seven days and sent forth the dove, which returned not again unto him any more. Now in these verses, we see Noah's working to determine the hospitality of the world. Noah's agents were two very different birds. The raven is useless, but the dove is extremely useful. One of the lessons I think we learned from Noah is this. Noah is not inactive in the face of God's activity. I think this is a principle which continues on today, and it's this. God's working, but you and I have to do our part too. Just because God is working, that doesn't mean we can just sit back and relax and say, oh well, I'll just let the Lord work. You know, the Christian life cannot be one of passive inactivity. Generally speaking, a continual response on our part to God's activity in our lives is appropriate. Now, I want you to notice the sharp contrast here. First of all, there's the ravens. The ravens. Uh, They were black in color. Uh, They were ritually unclean. They were unacceptable as the sacrifices unto God. They were eaters of dead things. Now, no doubt, when Noah sent the raven out, it was most likely that it sought out the carcasses for food. And that's uh, here uh, a picture as uh, 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 an object or a thing that is uncooperative. Now, on the other hand, you have the doves. They are white in color, classified as being ritually clean animals. They were acceptable as sacrifices unto God. They were cooperative and they were helpful to man. And in the scriptures, the Holy Spirit is depicted as being like a what? A dove. The word for dove and Noah are related. So that the picture is that the dove in our text was Noah's representative sent out into the world. Now many a Bible student has pondered this and speculated on Noah's use of these two very different birds. I think uh, there was one preacher that said Noah became a bird watcher. You know, think about this for a moment. From the dove and the raven, we can learn a very spiritual lesson. It's interesting that all the great truths of the Bible are connected in Genesis. The Bible teaches us that we as believers have What? Two natures, right? Uh, We have an old nature and we have a new nature. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. The clean and the unclean are together. You and I as believers have these two natures. 
The Lord said in John 3 and verse 6, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. And then Paul wrote over in Romans chapter 7 and verse 18, for I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. For to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good I find not. And so Paul spoke of the struggle between these two natures. And you, if you're going to be honest with me tonight, have to say, yeah, I struggle with those two natures too. Every one of us does. There's a struggle between the old nature and the new nature. The raven went out into a judged world, but he found a feast in the dead carcasses because that's the thing he lived on. The bloated carcass, maybe of an elephant, would have made him quite a banquet. Back and forth, he restlessly went up and down, and that's the picture of the old nature. The old nature is like a raven. The old nature loves the things of the world, and it feasts on them. That's the reason so many people watch television on Sunday night and aren't here tonight. They don't go to church because they're feasting on the world. They no doubt have a good excuse as well. Uh, You and I have an old nature, but there is no excuse because you and I ought not to be living in the old nature. The dove went out into a judged world, but found no rest, no satisfaction, and she returned to the ark. The dove represents the believer in the world. The old raven went out in the world and loved it. And when he found that old carcass, he probably thought, wow, the millennium has just arrived. You see, it's a matter of viewpoint. Now, some of our so-called educated men of the day will say, well, this matter of what's right and wrong, it's just relative. You know, well, may, uh, they, might, uh, they might be right. You know, it is. Uh, it is what God says is right, and it is what they say is wrong, and they don't find very much what is wrong, by the way. What God says is wrong is wrong. The believer is told, love not the world, neither the things of the world, uh, that, uh, neither the things that are in the world. And you and I live in a judged world today. We are in a world, but we're not of it. We're to use it, we're, we're not to abuse it. We're not to fall in love with it, but we are to attempt to win the lost in this world and get the word, uh, get out of the world uh, as, as, as through the word of God. Now Mark 16 and verse 15 says, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Let's take care of our job down here and let's get out the word of God. That's the important thing. Now the dove is recognized uh, or did recognize here what kind of world she was in. Found no rest. Found rest only in the ark And again, that ark is the great picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. Can you see the applications that we can make and even what God has placed here for us? This isn't just a story, uh, you know, not a cute story about some birds. This has got some real truth to it. Let me ask you a very personal question. What kind of bird are you tonight? Are you a raven or are you a dove? You know, if you're a child of God, you have both natures, but which kind are you living in today? Do you love the things of God or not? What kind of representative 
of God are you. So we notice here God's remembrance. Secondly, God's representative. Thirdly, God's request. Let's go down to verse 16. Verse 16, he says, Go forth of the ark, thou and thy wife, and thy sons and thy sons' wives with thee. This is what God has spoke, spoken to Noah. It says in verse 15, Earlier in our study, the great invitations, uh, we can uh, see the great invitations of the Bible, and uh, we can see in chapter 7 and verse 1 where God invited Noah and his family to come into the ark. Now at the command of God, Noah had built an ark. That was the vehicle of their physical salvation and deliverance. And at the command of God, Noah had gathered together the necessary food for their time in the ark. Now at the command of God, Noah and his family and all the animals that God had summoned entered into that ark. And lastly, at the command of God, he said, Go forth of the ark, Noah and his family and the animals uh, that God had summoned. And he said, It's time to exit, time to leave. Now, we looked at this in our last study uh, at one of the defining characteristics of Noah was that he was obedient to the commands of the Lord. And the principle for us was this. We need to be enthusiastic doers of God's word just as Noah was. Our obedience to God is a sign that we love him and that we're really his children. I want you to also notice here that Noah was a man who waited for God and His commands. He didn't run ahead of God and His will. There were certain things he knew uh, were required to, uh, and, uh, if, to go ahead of God uh, and the command of God uh, would have been uh, not the thing to do. Noah knew the timing of leaving the ark was for God to determine, and so he didn't run ahead of God. He waited on God and His command. How about you? Are you waiting for God's commands or are you running ahead of Him? Sometimes we want to go ahead of God. God's timing is some, something we struggle with. Uh, the problem is this. When we go ahead and leave God behind, we're going to end up having to settle with what is second best and substandard. And yet when we wait for God and don't try to force our wills upon whatever the situation is, then we're going to get God's best and we won't be disappointed. Also, do you know, do you want to know what God wants for you? Well, then you need to study and know His Word. If you want to know what God wants you to know, then you need to read and study His Word. Now, these animals that came out of the ark were to continue on God's pre-flood commands. Chapter 9 is going to note this for Noah as well. Creation commands are still standing. And so there's one other thing we want to look at tonight, and that's uh, God's respect. God's respect. We've seen His remembrance. We've seen His representative. We've seen His request. But then, fourthly, God's respect. Now, we're not talking about God's respect for man but rather Noah's respect for God. If you were in the ark for a year, what would you have done first when you got out of the ark? Uh, would you have kissed the ground? You know, like sometimes the, the, the astronauts come out of the, uh, you know, from the, back from their trips and they say, oh, it's great to be back in, on ground again. And they kiss the ground. 
Uh, would you have done handstands and cartwheels? Uh, would you have hopped on the back of a horse and rode off to explore the brand new world which uh, was before you? You know, after coming out of the ark, the first thing that the godly man Noah did was build an altar. And he offered some of the ritually clean animals to God. It's interesting about altars. Before Jerusalem temple was built, various altars existed where the worship of God was done. Altars built by those who had a personal encounter with God. You think of Jacob and later on we'll find Abraham. Typically these altars were built right at that spot. And on these altars, sacrifices were offered. The sacrifice of thanksgiving, of commitment, of praise and worship, and for sin and for fellowship with God. Now in the Old Testament, the altar is the means by which we, uh, one would approach God. Going to the altar with a sacrifice or offering was a physical way of drawing near to God. It's the altar that one has uh, that called upon God and God met with him. We don't need an altar to approach God today. We find that in the last part of chapter 8, there's a making of a covenant with Noah. God made it with Noah. He made it with the human family that is on the earth today. Go down to verse 20. And Noah built an altar unto the Lord and took of every clean beast and every clean fowl and offered burnt offerings on the altar. Now I think we should notice here why Noah took seven of the clean beast and only two of the unclean. He is now offering the clean beast as sacrifices. And the first thing that Noah did when he came out of the ark was to build an altar to the Lord, and he offered a sacrifice, a burnt offering to Him. That burnt offering speaks of the person of Jesus Christ. He, it was an offering on the basis of acceptance before God and praise to God in recognition of Him. Now, without a doubt, this was one of the things that caused God to be pleased with Noah at this particular time. Now, verse 21, it says, And the Lord smelled a sweet, uh, sweet savor, and the Lord said in his heart, I will not again curse the ground any more for man's sake, for the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth, neither will I again smite any more every thing living as I have done. Uh, you uh, can write it down that this is true. What about your youth, your life as a young person? Can you think back that far? Some of you don't have so far to think, right? Others of us, we have a little farther to think, back to our youth. Uh, was your imagination evil or not? Now, in our contemporary society, we can see the rebellion of youth. And isn't it interesting to note the direction many of them have gone? Every imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. And it does not improve. Some of you have no doubt noticed at your job or in your relationships with other people that how some people have a foul mouth. And they curse, 
and they use profanity without any thought or consideration. They don't care who's listening. It just comes out. It just rolls off their lips. You see, the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. Look at verse 22. While the earth remaineth, seed time and harvest, and cold and heat and summer and winter, and the day and night shall not cease. It has been suggested that the flood was so extensive that it tilted the earth. And as you know, the earth is not straight on its axis. We're off center, if you please. And the magnetic center is different from the center on which we're revolving. Uh, Something happened somewhere along the line, and it's thought that this is when it took place. Now, I don't know. I guess I'll just have to ask the Lord when I get to heaven. Perhaps you can remember when you were young, though, and we had some little simple toys sometimes to entertain us, didn't we? We didn't have all these fancy video games, and we didn't get sore thumbs, you know. Many of us used to just spin a top, and that used to entertain us for hours. And the top would spin around and around until it finally got wobbly and fell over. Well, the earth is a kind of spinning like that, and as a result of that spinning, we have the seasons. You know, the thing, another thing we used to talk about when we were younger was learning the three R's. Reading, writing, and arithmetic, right? I know, this didn't all start with R, but if you say it that way, they do. Well, before the flood, man learned the three R's too, but only they were a little different. Rebellion. Against God was realized. It came out right out in the open. Revelation from God was rejected by man, and Noah's witness did not reach them. And repentance. Rebellion, revelation, and repentance was absolutely repudiated. There was not a return to God at all. Man refused refuge that God provided. In 120 years, Noah preached, and he had no converts. These are the three R's. Man, men led in rebellion, they rejected the revelation, there was no repentance on their, their part. Now, as this man Noah comes forth from the ark, he stands in a most unique position. He stands in the position as being the head of the human race again. That's the same position that Adam had. You know, it's sad that we we're all related to Adam, but... We're closer kin even than that. We're all related to Noah. In one sense, Noah is the father of us all today. So here's a question. Why did Noah build an altar and offer sacrifices to God? It's because he wanted to please Him. He desired the fellowship of God. He, uh, he gave praise and thanks. He, uh, he, it was an expression of his commitment to God and God's number one place in his life. It was all about seeking the face of God and drawing near to God. I wonder, here's another question. Are our hearts orientated toward God like Noah's was? I wonder, is worship of God our top priority? Is the seeking of God and fellowshipping with Him our priority? What place does God have in our lives? When God does something for us, is going to Him the first thing we do? Here's another question. How can we do what Noah did without actually building an altar? Well, the Bible tells us we need to seek the Lord while He may be found. 
We need to draw near unto Him, and He will draw near to us. Uh, there's prayer and fasting. There's quiet contemplation. There's praise. There's the Word. There's loving obedience to Him. As we close here tonight, I want you to remember uh, what we've already looked at. First of all, there's no problem in fitting all the animals in the ark. Secondly, there was more than enough water to flood the whole earth. And the words, God remembered Noah, are the turning points. They mark a new direction, a change in the sentiment of God. God's remembering of someone in the Scriptures involves an action directed toward them by Him. And then there was the, the dove and the raven, their representative birds. The dove, being white and clean and acceptable to God, depicts the Holy Spirit, is representative of those who are godly, pure, acceptable in, his sight, in the sight of God. The raven being black and unclean and preoccupied with death, unacceptable to God, is representative of those who are ungodly, evil, and unacceptable in the sight of God. Then I want you to remember also that when Noah came out of the ark, God's commands speaks yet again of his stellar obedience to God. You know, the Bible says, if you love me, keep my commandments. I wonder, is all, you're all on the altar of sacrifice laid this evening? Do you honor, do you respect, do you worship God with your life? The Scripture tells us, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Now, we don't have to get a bunch of stones and build an altar. But you know what? God wants our lives to be a living sacrifice for Him. And I trust that God will help us to be that sacrifice and re represent the Lord in the world today in the right way. You know, we're fighting those two natures. Those two natures within us are fighting us. And we need to allow uh, that new nature to have dominance in our life. And uh, as we sacrifice to the Lord, 